Good morning. Welcome again to Del Rio Bible Church. We're really glad you're here. Uh, opening your Bibles to the book of Mark, we're continuing in our study of the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29 is where we are this morning in the book of Mark. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders, orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hear nice people, right? On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this crucial portion of Scripture this crucial passage that I think in so many ways, Lord, speaks so directly to where we are in our society today, to where we are as a church and as believers addressing the unrighteousness of this world. Thank you for John and his courage, his willingness to give the ultimate price for he cared more about righteousness than his own life. Lord, we ask you to guide us, help us to hear what you want us to hear, to see in this text what you want us to see, to understand and believe and apply it to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. True discipleship will bring us into conflict with our society. 
I think that's what we see in our passage this morning in Luke chapter in Mark chapter six. It's not Luke. Uh, Mark chapter six. True discipleship will bring us into conflict with our society. I am amazed at how things have changed over the last 25 to 30 to 50 years. There's a time when we were simply called as believers in Christ who stood for righteousness. We were simply called old-fashioned. Sometimes we were called Victorian in our morals and in our beliefs. And then that morphed into we are an intolerant people because we stand for the truth of the Bible, because we stand for the righteousness which the Bible requires, and we're called intolerant. Today, we're being called a threat to society just because we stand for biblical truth. And that's why I think in a very real way, this passage in Mark chapter 6, this passage in Mark chapter 6 speaks to us in a very direct way about true discipleship, about the need to confront the unrighteousness of our society. There are three things that I would like you to see as we go through this passage this morning. The first, I've already mentioned, true discipleship costs. True discipleship costs. The second thing that I want us to see is that the death of John in this passage did not silence Jesus' message. The death of John in this passage did not silence Jesus' method. This passage is... Uh, grammatically a sandwich construction. Now, don't think about ham and cheese. Okay, it's not. <laughs> or, or don't think, for me, it would be an Italian BMT at Subway, but that's a whole nother story. Um, sandwich construction simply means that, uh, in our case here, just before chapter 6, and verse 14, we're told about Jesus sending his disciples on a mission, a preaching mission, a healing mission. And then we're told the story of John sandwiched between that. And if you'll look at chapter 6 and verse 30, we see the immediate thing after the story about John is the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him. In other words, we have the mission of the disciples. We have the death of John sandwiched between the return of the disciples to give, a, to give a report to Jesus about their mission. And so it's called a sandwich construction. What it is trying to point out to us is that even though John, who was uh, preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom, even though John, who was such an important part, even though John was the forerunner of Jesus, even though he is put to death, it did not stop and could not stop and will not stop the truth from going forth. That's what the sandwich construction is pointing out here. It's pointing out that the message can't be stopped. 
the people of God can't be stopped. And that's what we are want to see here. So we have true discipleship costs. Secondly, the death of John did not silence Jesus' message. And then thirdly, the answer to unrighteousness in a society is the gospel. The answer to unrighteousness in a society is the gospel. So that's, that's what we want to see as we go through this passage this morning. Now, there are a couple of things I'd like to share as kind of background before we get into the details of this passage. And that is that Jesus and John are linked in the scripture in various ways. Jesus and John are linked in the scripture in various ways. When Herod hears about Jesus and his disciples and about their ministry, when Herod hears about that, the first thing he thinks is, oh, this is John come back from the dead. He knew he had had him put to death, but the first thing he thinks about is, this is John come back from the dead. Now, why did he make that connection? Well, you see, there are various connections in the Scripture, various ways that uh, Jesus and John are linked. There are connections between John and Jesus and between John and Elijah. And so let me, let me give you a little bit of background there. The first thing is there is connection between Jesus and John. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry after John's arrest. We're told that in chapter 1 and verse 14. Jesus begins his ministry after John's arrest. Secondly, Jesus links his ministry and John's ministry. Chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. Thirdly, Jesus links his own fate with John's fate in Matthew 17, verses 10 to 15 the parallel passage. So there is a link between Jesus and John. And so apart from Herod's guilty conscience about putting John to death, there is a link, there is a reason that he would think it is John come back from the dead who's uh, doing these miracles, who's doing this teaching, who's doing this ministry and, and uh, drawing so much attention to themselves. Uh, there's a parallel between John and Herod and Elijah and Ahab. Why is that important? Because Elijah is to come before the Messiah. And so Jesus himself connected John and Elijah. Now, how is there another connection for them? Well, Herod fears and resents John even as Ahab feared and resented Elijah. Her Herodias schemes to kill John, even as Ahab's wife Jezebel schemed to kill Elijah. Mark is showing that John is the prophet like Elijah, promised in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. So there are various connections between Jesus and John, and between John and Elijah, and uh, uh, connections that bring them into contact, bring them into uh, uh, linked 
between each other in various ways. Well, in the text we see that there are opinions about Jesus in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, and then there is the death of the forerunner in chapter 6, verses 17 to 29. We read, King Herod heard about this. Now, the this that it's referring to is the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his disciples. That's what the reference is when it says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Uh, some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. So there were various opinions. Now, we have to understand a little bit about King Herod. Now, he wasn't really a king. He was a tetrarch. Uh, he ruled a quarter of his father's kingdom, uh, but not as a, a king. He was called king as in deference to his position, but he was not a king. Uh, the Herod, there are six Herods in the New Testament. Did you? That's a good trivia question. You ought to write that down because that may come up sometime. How many Herods are there in the New Testament? There are six. There are six Herods in the New Testament. The one that we're talking about here in Mark chapter 6 is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. He is the son of Herod the Great. Now, I, I have to tell you, this family of Herod the Great was a piece of work. They were something. Herod the Great had three of his sons murdered. Nice guy, right? Hi, Dad. You're gone. Out of here. He had three of his sons murdered. And it was said of Herod that it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Another writer said, the whole Herodian family history is a complex tale of immorality and intrigues. A complex tale of immorality and intrigues. So the Herod that we're talking about in our passage this morning is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. By the way, Herod the Great, another thing that, we, uh, that he is known for is he is the one who had the babies in Bethlehem, the children up to two years old, put to death so that he could get rid of Israel's king, he thought. That's the father of Herod Antipas, and Antipas is the Herod we're talking about in our passage now, Herod Antipas married, uh, was married to the daughter of King Aretas of Arabia. He was married to the daughter of King Aretas of Arabia. And uh, he uh, took a trip to Rome to see Philip, his half-brother. Philip, who was married to Herodias. And Herodias and Aretas, Herod Aretas, had an affair at that time. And Herod... Antipas talked her into leaving her husband, divorcing her husband, and marrying him. Not only was this, uh, not only had they committed adultery, but since she was his half-niece, this was also an incestuous relationship. So that's a little bit about how um, Herod and Herodias married, how they 
committed adultery, were in an incestuous relationship, and that's what John was accusing Herod of. That's what John was telling Herod, you're living an unrighteous life, you're living in an unrighteous way, and you need to repent of that. You need to turn around and walk in a different direction. So, uh, and of course, we know from our passage that Herod Antipas had John beheaded. He was also the Herod that judged Jesus at one of his six trials before his crucifixion. And we also know that he died in exile. Needless to say, he was a vile person. He was a lecherous person. He was a man ruled by his passions, passion for power, passion for the flesh. For the flesh. He had, uh, I don't know where I got this statement, but he had all the moral fiber of a bowl of jello. That was Herod Antipas. Uh, we, there's a good warning for us in this, and that is we must not be ruled by our passions. We not, unless it's a passion for Jesus Christ, unless it's a passion for the Lord, we must not be ruled by our passions. We must be disciplined. We must be disciplined. We must not be at the mercy of our passions. We must not live for immediate gratification. So much of our society today, so much of the way our society uh, is, is geared is I want what I want and I want it right now and I will not wait. Folks, if we're going to move away from that kind of thinking, we're going to have to deal with it in our children. Children always want something right away, right? You ever stand in line with your kids or behind somebody's other's kids in the checkout line at Walmart and they see that candy bar before you do? <laughs> and they want it, and they want it now. And they will, they will do what they... I had to laugh. We were at dinner the other night. <laughs> And this poor, poor, poor single lady, at least she was alone, we don't know if she was single, was there, was at the restaurant with her, her daughter who was given her fits because she wouldn't let her daughter do what she wanted to do. Just a little girl, she was probably, what, two or three years old? Two years old. And, uh, and, and the, she had to get up and leave. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, I, and when I hear people say, well... Children are not sinners. Children are innocent. I say, wait a second, have you ever had kids? You know that's not true, right? <laughs> you know that they have a sin nature just like we do. Uh, at any rate, we have to teach our kids to delay gratification. I'm not saying it's easy. And sometimes we don't want to delay gratification, so we have a difficult time saying to our kids, you need to learn to delay gratification. But that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. We have to be disciplined, and we have to not be at the mercy of, mercy of our passions, and we must not live for immediate gratification, but rather build discipline into our lives and build discipline 
into our children's lives. Well, that, that's a, a little bit about Herod, a little bit of background about him. So we see there's, there was some different opinions about who Jesus was. Some say he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, although John never performed miracles. Um, some say that Jesus uh, was Elijah based on Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Some say that he was a prophet resuming the line of prophets. Now, there are many who, uh, on the basis of this uh, speculation that he is a prophet, sometimes think of him as the prophet, as that they're talking about the prophet. Do you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19, Moses said God would send a prophet like him. Now, who is that referring to? Take a guess. Jesus, yeah, don't be afraid, folks. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lead you into a bad place, okay? I, I want you to feel good. I want you to leave here feeling good, okay? Uh, yeah, Moses was prophesying the coming of Jesus. He talks about the prophet that God would send, and is speaking of Jesus. So some people, when they read a passage such as this, and where some people say that he is a prophet, they think immediately of the Deuteronomy passage, but that's not what is meant here. What is meant here, and you can read that, uh, he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago. They were saying Jesus is either John the Baptist raised from the dead, Jesus is either Elijah, or he's a prophet resuming the line of prophets. Resuming the, not the prophet, not the prophet promised in Deuteronomy by Moses, but rather he is resuming the line of prophets. The point is this. They see Jesus fulfilling all sorts of roles except God incarnate, the Messiah, the Savior. And that's not much different than today because so many people see Jesus in all kinds of roles except who he is, Son of God, God incarnate, Savior who went to Calvary's cross in your place and in my place and so many around us, they see him as a great moral man, a great moral teacher, a, a, a great person who, who is our example and lived in a way that we should live. Um, they see, they say him, see him as everything but what he is. There's a, a story told. I, I can't verify it's true. I hope it is because I like it. And I want to share it with you. One Sunday, a plainly dressed, scholarly-looking man went into a church in the Netherlands and took a seat near the pulpit. A few minutes later, a woman approached the pew. Seeing the stranger in it, she curtly advised him that he was in her seat and asked him to leave. The man graciously apologized and moved to one of the pews reserved for the poor. There he devoutly joined in the service and left afterward without further incident. When the service was over, one of the women's friends asked her if she knew who it was whom she had ordered out of her pew. No, the woman replied casually, only some stranger, I suppose. To the woman's great dismay, her friend informed her it was King Oscar of Sweden who was there visiting the queen. 
didn't know who he was. There's so many people today who don't know who the Savior is, who make Jesus everything but what he is, Son of God, God incarnate, who died for us. William Barclay said this, there were many ideas about the Messiah, but the commonest of all was that he would be a conquering king who would first give who would first give the Jews back their liberty and who would then lead them on a triumphant campaign throughout the world. It was an essential part of that belief that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, would come again to be his herald and his forerunner. Even to this day, when the Jews celebrate the Passover feast, they leave at the table an empty chair called Elijah's chair. They place it there with a glass of wine before it, and at one part of their service, they go to the door and fling it wide open that Elijah may come in and bring at last the long-awaited news that the Messiah had come. There's a quote that I'm sure most of you are familiar with if you've ever read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. It's an often quoted quotation. Lewis said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not in, uh, intend to. These people attributed everything to Jesus except who he was. And there are people around us today who attribute to Jesus everything except who he is. The one to whom they should go in repentance the one to whom they should go in faith, believing. Someone has said questions about who Jesus is continue to surround the stories about him today. People still propose all kinds of explanations, a good teacher, a political revolutionary. Boy, that's a big one today. Did you know that? A big one today is seeing Jesus as a political revolutionary. He was not. He was not. A self-deceived cult leader. People prefer to believe that Jesus is a small-time upstart who died for his beliefs than the Son of God who conquered death for the whole world. Somehow he doesn't quite fit their expectations for what God would be like. Even in churches, believers argue about who Jesus is and what he really cared about most. Like everyone else, we tend to mold Jesus to fit our views and values. Like the world, we want a Jesus whom we can control. However, we must constantly resubmit ourselves to Jesus' control. We must die to ourselves daily 
and follow Jesus where he leads. What great words, what great words. We want a Jesus we can control. However, we must constantly resubmit ourselves to him. That's the key to our lives. That's the key to, to God doing in our lives and producing in our lives the things that he wants. We must constantly resubmit to him. There are three questions that the Bible raises and answers about Jesus. And in fact, the most compact place in the Bible where you can find this is in the prologue to John, in John chapter 1. And those three questions that are asked and answered multiple times in the Bible are these questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the first question that the Bible deals with and the first question it answers and the question that John raises in his prologue in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Who is Jesus? He's God. God incarnate. God incarnate. God taking upon himself human flesh so he could go to the cross. The second question the Bible deals with, and again you see it compactly in the prologue to John, is do we have enough evidence? And the answer that the scripture continually gives is yes, we have plenty of evidence. We have first and foremost what? We have eyewitness evidence. Look at the first chapter of the book of 1 John where John says, we saw Jesus with our own eyes. We touched him. We know he was real. We heard him. We have eyewitness testimony. We have the testimony of more than 500 people who saw Jesus alive from the dead, resurrected from the dead. Who is Jesus? He's God incarnate. He's God incarnate. Do we have evidence? Yes. We have the evidence of eyewitnesses. We have the evidences of the biblical text, which is totally reliable. And then the third question is, what does it matter? The third question that the Bible deals with is, what does it matter? It matters because eternity hangs in the balance for those who reject Jesus Christ. You're either going to spend eternity, every person's either going to spend eternity with God in heaven, or they're going to spend eternity apart from God in hell. So what does it matter who Jesus is? Your eternal, your eternal destiny is based on your decision about who Jesus is. So there were some questions. So we read in verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, we've already looked at that, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. I'd like to share with you a couple of profiles of John the Baptist, a couple of profiles of John the Baptist, particularly at this point in his life, at this point in his life when he has been arrested, when he's, he was in jail. By the way, John had one year of ministry, two years in jail, and then he was beheaded. One year of ministry, two years in jail, and then he was beheaded. What do some say about John the Baptist? One writer said there could be no greater suffering for an out-of-door type like John than to be shut up in a fortress prison. Those wilderness years were rough, but they were years of the Spirit's fullness. God was with him, and he asked neither for riches nor for comfort, only for the privilege of being able to burn out for God. Instead of that, he found himself in a living tomb with no evidence of divine vindication. It is true that he had expressed his willingness to decrease, but he had never thought that it would work out that way. I love that statement, don't you? He expressed his willingness to decrease. John said he must increase and I must decrease, or I must decrease so that he, Jesus, could increase. It's different when you face it right there. It's different saying it. And I I like what this writer said. Um, Instead of that, he found himself in a living tomb. It is true that he had expressed his willingness to decrease, but he had never thought that it would work out in this way. Finally, he passed from the dungeon to the headsman's block. And then another profiled John this way. Things were not turning out the way John the Baptist expected. He had done his best to tell people that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He had faithfully preached his God-given message of repentance. He had even chastised Herod for adultery and called on him to repent. The next thing John knew, he was in prison. Loneliness and self-pity eventually gave way to doubt. If Jesus really were the Messiah, John likely reasoned, God would never have allowed me to be locked up. I'm the messenger sent to prepare the way, so why am I here? I think that's good insight. There must have been times when John said, why has, this, why has God let this happen to me? Why am I here? I served faithfully. Why am I here? Why am I facing this? And uh, I think that's good insight about him. And so John sent some of his disciples to Jesus to question him. Are you really the Messiah, they asked? Jesus was not offended. He simply reminded them of the evidence, his words and his works. Even devoted people like John the Baptist have periodic episodes of honest doubt. They want to believe, and as soon as they are reminded of the truth, their faith is restored. And please listen to this next part. Don't be devastated if you have momentary lapses in your faith. There's nothing wrong with doubts if you settle them by faith. 
So don't, as the writer said, don't be devastated. And then he quotes, and, and this is a quote that I'm thinking about putting on my wall. As Frederick Buchner once noted, and here's the quote, maybe you want it on your refrigerator, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> Don't you like that? Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> They keep it awake and moving. <laughs> Just remind yourself of the things that you know are true and you'll be okay. Just remind yourself of the things that you know are true. You know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, God incarnate. You know he died on Calvary's cross for you and took your place. You know that he endured suffering, so why is it that we think we shouldn't? Or won't. Just remind yourself of the things you know and you'll be okay. Even the most faithful believers struggle with doubt. Well, Herodias had it in for John. She was infuriated by John. Herod, some think, put John in prison to protect him from her. That's <laughs> That sounds about right to me. Uh, she was a really ambitious woman. Uh, others think that Herod was awed by the purity of John's character. It is interesting that sometimes those who don't have character, those like Herod, whose character is in the cellar, so to speak, they like to listen to, they like to be around people who are ethical people who are honest, people they know they can trust, people who they, they know won't be one thing one moment and another thing another moment, even if they're not. And it seems that that was true of John, uh, of Herod rather, and John. Well, the trouble was that Herod's sin kept him from considering John's message. One Several have noted that Herod is the picture of a vas vacillating moral weakling. Well, verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Uh, this was an oriental orgy, one, per, one person called it an oriental orgy of drunkenness and debauchery. When the daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased, and by the way, Josephus tells, tells us her name was Salome. The scripture doesn't tell us what her name is, but Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, uh, tells us her name was Salome. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, that's a, that was an odd addition. 
she wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Why do you think that was? It's in the context of a banquet. And this was just another part of the banquet to her, to have his head on a platter. And also, she wanted his head because she didn't want any kind of bait and switch going on. That somebody else's head rolled instead of John's. She wanted to be sure it was him. The king was greatly distressed, but because of, the, of his oaths and his dinner guests, in other words, he didn't have the moral courage to stand up to her and say, no, I won't do that. He worried about his own image. He worried about his own image. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. What a fine family they are. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Someone has said this. We see in these verses how little reward some of God's best servants receive in this world. An unjust imprisonment and a violent death were the last fruit that John the Baptist reaped in return for his labor. Like Stephen and James and others of whom the world was not worthy, he was called to seal his testimony with his blood. Histories like these are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His crown, his wages, his reward, and all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he must walk by faith and not by sight. And if he looks for the praise of men, he will be disappointed. Here in this life, we must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution. And if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. Heaven will make amends for all. Eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard the glorious things that God has laid up for all that love him. The value of real religion is not to be measured by the things seen, but by the things unseen. And let me share one more thing with you. It's called You're Not Home Yet. Ray Stedman shared this in his book, Talking to my father. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for years and they were returning to New York to retire. They had no pension, their health was broken, they were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid much attention to them. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage with passengers trying to catch a glimpse of the great man. As the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives and faithful service to God in Africa all these many years and have no one care a thing about us? Here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him but nobody gives two hoots about us. Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. My wife would say that to me. She would straighten me out quickly. Maybe you have a wife like that as well. I hope you do. 
Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were there. The papers were full of the president's arrival, but no one noticed the missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. That night, the man's spirit broke. He said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife replied, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? A short time later, he came out from the bedroom, but now his face was completely different. His wife asked, dear, what happened? The Lord settled it with me, he said. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met, else, met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. True discipleship costs. The death of John did not silence Jesus' message and his ministry. The answer to righteousness, unrighteousness in a nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for those who are the, of whom the world is not worthy, such as John the Baptist. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for what he left, the courage he showed, what he showed us life is all about, and we look forward to meeting him, Lord, in glory. Help us to stand for righteousness. Help us to know that your message can't be stopped. And that the only cure for our nation and this world, the only cure for its unrighteousness is the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.